0: Crazy Rich Asians is all over the news and movie house marquees lately. But it's just one way of telling a much bigger story about cultures and wealth and family. And once you dig in, there are so many kinds of wealth. Billionaire bucks, sure. But philosophical wealth and literary wealth, too, not least, out of China. Eileen Cheng-Yin Chow grew up in her own Crazy Rich Asian story in Taiwan with a family that had fled Mao's revolution and the mainland, Her grandfather was a Chinese press lord in the time of warlords, the William Randolph Hearst of China. Now she tells stories at Xixin University in Taipei and explores narrative itself at Duke University's Story Lab. She's also an associate professor of Chinese and Japanese cultural studies at Duke, and she's a Twitter fave of mine with her every night a poem hashtag that has lit up many a night for me in the last couple of years. I spent Ten years in Asia, India, China, Japan, all over. How the Asian narrative meets the American narrative matters to me. But it's all human narrative. Eileen Chen-Yung Chow joined me from Durham, North Carolina. Just to start somewhere fun, and we know a little bit about your background, mm-hmm. uh, but as you were working your way through graduate school, you were doing a lot of interpreting and translating because you had this youth, uh, right. r- 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 very Chinese, but also cosmopolitan in Taiwan and then uh, as a teenager to the States and so very bilingual. And you did a lot of translating and subtitling jobs. I have done a bit of that in a kind of crazy setting as well. Let's share stories. Uh, uh, Tell tell us some of yours. You're in the mountains of Sichuan uh, doing, I don't know, subtitles, Uh, living next to pandas. What was that?
1: That was, um, actually, that was a kind of uh, major studio job. Um, I was, uh, my first year of graduate, I, it was after my first year of graduate school, and I was, uh, had my big stack of books studying for my generals in Beijing. Um, yeah. I had gone back to Beijing to spend the summer and got a call, a uh, friend of a friend saying they need interpreters on set because their existing interpreters weren't getting um, the message across. The it was job a, done, yeah. Right. It was a um, co-production between Warner Brothers and Chinese Film Studios, which was one of the first of it was in the mid 90s. And so it was one of the first co-productions, yeah. major co-productions. And apparently, it just wasn't happening. Like, you know, messages weren't getting relayed, and they just felt we needed people who understood what was going on on both ends. I can picture and, that. You know
0: that scene? I don't know yeah. if you remembered in Lost in Translation, where Bill Murray yes. is during the whiskey ad, and the oh Japanese director yes. gives him a long, long set of uh, instructions yes. and encouragement, and the translator gives him about six words, and Bill Murray's like, "Wait right. a minute, that can't be all they said." <laughs>
1: I actually opened um my class on language and migration with that clip.
0: Yeah, it's um, fantastic.
1: Yes, right. You know, and basically she just translates more intensity, more intensity.
0: <laughs> right. After um, 16 minutes of instructions. Right, precisely.
1: And um I think I think that was precisely that was precisely the problem and they needed people who were culturally fluent as well. Uh-huh. Yes. And uh so uh, a bunch of us got, you know, called in. Three or four of us got called in at the last minute. And then I ended up spending my summer in the mountains uh, working as an interpreter. And what was really funny about that job was uh, – the film is Amazing Panda Adventure, uh, um, a, a sort of a B-movie if you've ever seen one. Okay. <laughs> and, right. But, um, you know, little – it's basically, you know, I don't know, f- Free Willy, but pandas.
0: But pandas. And
1: – and that's right. Panda Country, and the mountains
0: of Sichuan. That's the yes, heartland of it. Yes. The bamboo. I know that so, territory. They they right? love the thick bam, Have you bamboo been? there. Yes.
1: Yes. It's it's really an amazing area. So it so was part lush. of just wanting to go there. Yeah. So, and um, they had, uh, so it was Warner Brothers and the film, the cinematography crew was all Clint Eastwood's people. Okay. And so, because they wanted to go to Sichuan. And so, you know, so they all signed on for this movie. <laughs> sure. Um, but the production company was all Bertolucci's people because they ah. were the people who had – who were the only – one of the few Western film crews, studio crews that had experience in China. In China, yeah. And so it was the whole Bertolucci Italian crew. And, <laughs> it just sounds uh, like
0: Eileen chung ying yes, territory I, with I, multicultures I going know. on at once.
1: I know. Um, uh, and then Beijing Film Studios of course yeah. and they had actually their own adjustment because they were from Beijing and they yeah. were working in the mountains of Sichuan where it's actually <laughs> a a big Tibetan pop- population as well and yes of course it's on the way they were not right so they were not also getting their point across to their local Sichuan drivers <laughs> and you know um and um what was fun for me was I'm actually I was a Italian's one of my languages Perfect. and so so be, I, be, I became this weird person doing three-way translation. Bertolucci, um,
0: Beijing, Clint Eastwood. That's that's quite Yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> so I it was a lot
1: it. of fun. It was I a lot of it. fun.
0: You know, I it used to do, um, this is way back when China was barely open. And mm-hmm. um, a friend had a contact inside China who would bring out old, pre-revolutionary black and white Kung Fu films from all over China. Uh, in lots of different languages and and dialects. And we would uh, dub them into English and then ship them out around the world to English speaking markets. The thing was, some of us spoke Mandarin, some of us spoke Cantonese, but sometimes these films were in neither of those. And we would just put those big old reels of film up on the movieola that you'd pump with your foot and it would turn. And just for the economy of it, we'd just start at the beginning of the film and we would just begin writing a script with no idea where this was going to go. <laughs> and I remember sitting up high in Mong Kok above Hong Kong you know, on hot afternoons, just pumping through right. these films, praying that the storyline that I had started would last until the end of the film. And then later that night... We'd be out in Run Run Shaw's old studios in Diamond Hill in Kuntong. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and dubbing these with a, with a cast of it was basically a British actors and actresses who were in Hong right. Kong. Uh, in, oh, it was, it was just. But it, it seems to me all of this is a kind of metaphor for your territory. I mean, you work with narrative there at Duke. Uh, right. The way the, the idea of a of a film with a vivid story being portrayed from China. Where the listener or viewer has no mm-hmm. idea what they're actually saying, but, right. but makes Absolutely. a narrative of it anyway. This is what we live very often in the world these days, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Um, um, and before I talk about that, I was going to mention: Have you seen a film called Dialectics Can Break Bricks?
0: No, I don't know it.
1: It's a it's just a chopsocky kung fu film that's yeah. been dubbed over with French. Marxist um, arguing post-structuralism.
0: Oh my God. Okay.
1: It's, 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 it's kind of brilliant. It, it sounds like, you know, basically the natural end point of what you were doing. And, yes, um, yes. But it's it's great. It's basically a, a standard martial arts film that's been dubbed and um, with with a, a with a French philosophical discussion. Well, we didn't and go for um,
0: post-modernism. We searched for meaning, but, <laughs> but meaning was often elusive when you have no idea yes, where the film's going yes. as you interpret it.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, but actually, you're just you were just honoring really the, the beginnings of film, right? Because mm-hmm. the early silent films, especially in Asia, were uh, accompanied by benshi and Japanese, right? Um, mm-hmm. That they had people who were just narrating as yes. the films were playing, and mm-hmm. they just kind of made it up as they went along. <laughs> and actually, in colonial territories like Taiwan, yes. the benshi often played a political role. So they would actually make, you know, sort of snarky comments about Japan you know as they went of along course. in taiwanese so it's you know so so it's a it's a time honored tradition
0: let's turn a little bit toward crazy rich Asians. Yes. it's had so much attention yes. lately of course it's based in singapore but it's a chinese community there right um, your family also pretty well off very cosmopolitan but not singapore based but taiwan how how did your family Late. end up in taiwan uh
1: various strands of my family there so I should say how did they all first end up in northern China. Um, okay. So I, uh, my family is a, a kind of typical gentry family where every strand, you know, lived in various parts of the south or uh, the old, you know, um, Zhejiang, Shanghai area, mm-hmm. uh, Hunan area, mm-hmm. um, and they all went north, you know, to seek fame and fortune. Yes. And a couple generations back, so. Um, my grandfather was actually my maternal grandfather was actually a very self-made man. He was newspaper a
0: reporter and publisher. Yeah, yeah,
1: yes, he was a journalist. Chen he was um, probably uh, he was known as China's Hearst. Though I don't know if that's wow. a compliment, well, but um, it's very but very did,
0: rich <laughs> title. I have right, to say. It's a rich appellation is very stuff. strong. <laughs>
1: Lots of subtext, um, yeah. but he was a uh, he was actually sponsored by the two founding members of the Chinese Communist Party, Chen Duxiu and Li Zhao mm-hmm. to go to Beijing as a young man. He was a young man from the provinces, and he was part of the Communist Party. He was actually the first translator of the Communist Manifesto, uh, parts parts of it in vernacular the Chinese. Chinese incredible. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he quickly decided that he wasn't communist. Mm-hmm. And he continued his life as a newspaper man and started owning papers and started publish. So he ended up with 15 or 16 papers. Um, so that's a long way of saying Um, As the war progressed, he was, of course, covering the war in various provinces where his various papers were based. This is World War II, and then I
0: guess the revolution subsequently, yes.
1: Right, and in Hong Kong as well. And so after 49, when uh, the People's Republic of China was established, he uh, basically permanently retreated to Hong Kong for uh, several years and then to Taiwan. Um, Because uh, one oddity is he was actually the senator from Beijing. Um, and was elected in forty eight, I think. And this but is then
0: under was the shek.
1: Yes, time. under the yes, precisely in under the Kuomintang. And mm-hmm. so he was. And since there were no democratic elections, mm-hmm. uh, legislative elections in Taiwan till the eighties, he was basically senator from Beijing for forty years. Um,
0: <laughs> in exile yeah, in, in, in Taiwan. Taiwan. In exile oh in
1: Taiwan. <laughs> so so oh that's God. one strand. And I also another. The other grandfather was a general who also was peripatetic, and. You know, uh, fought wars all through China and for the KMT, and then w- ended up in Taiwan. Well, so so um, yeah.
0: This, <laughs> so. Th- this couldn't be much richer. It sounds like we could go deep there, but I think that that entitles you mm-hmm. to some kind of status as the crazy rich Asian before, Jet- long before the movie, the William Randolph Hearst of China. That's a mind-boggling title. What right. were you thinking as you watched the the film? It's being so celebrated because it's got an all Chinese cast, right, and, it, right. and it and it allows a a a an Asian story, a Chinese story, to be told in a much more organic way with Chinese actors and actresses right there in the at the center of it. What were you thinking as you watched?
1: Well, you know, it's it's very. Um, I watched it with many different lenses, but that's basically mm-hmm. how I live my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've lived in the U.S. long enough that I've very much think of myself as Asian American and um, and I'm very involved in Asian American activism. And so I feel that, you know, on one hand, I was just happy. I was happy for a lot of young students and people who have told me how much the film meant to them. Um, I was happy for the actors, um, Constance Wu and, you know, yes. all, all Ken Jeong and all these Asian American actors who are getting meaty roles, right? Central yes. roles, not mm-hmm. the sidekick.
0: Nope, not at all.
1: And... And not the tragic heroine like Anime Wong
0: yes. way back.
1: And and I was that was a feeling of gladness, right? I was happy for a kind of mainstream success. And this is how I felt kind of about the TV show Fresh Off the Boat. And full disclaimer, Jeff Yang's a college friend of mine, and his son is the main character in that TV series. Got it. Um, so I was very happy for so on that level, I'm just glad that there was this opportunity to tell a kind of story. Um But I also have very different, you know, lens that I wear. And one of them is I very much identify as Chinese diaspora. Yes. And also Chinese from Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese in a sense too. And so, you know, there are things that made me cringe a little. Such as? And, uh, you know, this is interesting because this is something that actually a lot of people have praised about the film, Mm -hmm. which is the, which is the, the, the Chinese is spoken in, in the film. The various, the Hokkien, yes. the, the Mandarin, and the. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, for uh, it, it's a little hard for me because I feel like they don't really match up to a kind of our similitude. The grandmother, for example, um, who is a great actress, Lisa Lu, Lu, uh, Lu Yen, who's ninety-one, she looks great.
0: Um, I've seen she, early pictures of her that you've tweeted. Yeah. What what, a, what yes. a beauty then and I now. Know.
1: I know, and she's wonderful, and she's but she has a very northern Chinese accent, mm-hmm. and that just came out of nowhere when you know everybody else had a different you know stuff like that that really just kind of made me but that's but I realized that was me, and the film wasn't exactly for me and so so those those things the other is just the more obvious that um this is not what Singapore looks like uh Singapore is very multicultural Singapore um lots of does South Asians have,
0: Indians, Malays yeah. of course.
1: Absolutely, and Singapore of course has a China Chinese privilege, Han privilege problem, mm-hmm. you know. But it's strange also when the absolute invisibility, it, you know, the that 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 really that kind of grated a little bit. But again, um, I feel that there are different ways of looking at it. You know, are you celebrating this uh in some ways milestone in the industry, or are you reading the text of the film? And so I feel like that you know, brought different reactions out of me. And the final thing I mentioned, you know, to you in a message yeah. that yeah, I mean, I was joking with friends that you know the crazy rich part actually seemed quite accurate. Um, uh, no, having known for sure. you know, not not my family, but no, you know, having known a lot of rich people and yeah. Yeah. in Asia, but yeah. you know, ostentatiously uh, living their you know th- their wealth. But I was saying I don't know any assistant professors like that, so that was really <laughs> right. I was like, that's the that's the fantasy, that's the rom com for me, you know. So well, but, um,
0: <laughs> uh, maybe, but is, isn't that a little bit in your territory? I mean, when you go home to 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 the family right. uh, I, I guess yes. it must be a little bit of that dynamic
1: oh of course of course I mean I feel like um, especially when everybody uh, when they ask her what she does you're, you're a professor oh you must be very smart yes. or you read a lot and they then they turn away from you yeah. that's basically been my whole life <laughs> Yeah. You know, in, in every in every uh, situation with you know sort of financial types and which is you know, half my family, but, um, and yeah. you kind of you know I, sort of dismissed. I,
0: I want to keep your hashtag every night a poem mm-hmm. running through our conversation, if right. we can, mm-hmm. I think, mean, because I, I, I adore it, and I went back to the beginning uh, of it, right? Which almost sounds like a, I don't know, a Song or Tang era poem in itself. You wrote on Twitter, seeking respite from lies and obfuscation, so hashtag every night a poem Good night Good it's got an almost if, if we're japanese it's almost haiku <laughs> sounding <laughs> and you start there with a 12th century warrior poet shin Shichi. right uh who's uh in his lifetime you remind us uh, china was occupied he fought against the occupiers he got sidelined so sort of drifting through a decade in minor official posts in remote lands and um you began this at a time where you say, seeking respite from lies and obfuscation. This was January of 2017. So this is not long right. after the election of, of President Trump. Um, and you probably don't have it in front of you, but, but I do. And it, be, it, it begins, it says, uh, in English. I'm a little
1: abashed. Yes, so, okay. right.
0: It says, in youth, I knew nothing of the taste of sorrow. I like to climb high towers. I like to climb high towers to conjure up a bit of sorrow, to make new verse. He had to conjure up a bit of sorrow. Now he says, now I know only too well the taste of sorrow. I begin to speak yet pause. I begin to speak yet pause and say instead, my, what a cool and lovely autumn. Mm -hmm. And there's the, there's the scholar in exile (laughs) with so much (laughs) that cannot be said or. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's,
1: it's one of my favorite poems for that reason. And I think um, the best thing about poetry is, of course, returning to your favorite poems. Um, I th- there's no rhyme or reason. A lot of people have asked me why I tweet what I tweet. And I I really tweet whatever comes to my mind. There, I don't particularly – I'm not doing a Pete Souza, actually. I don't tend to match um, exactly what's going on yeah. um, in our daily polity. But it's more – what is inspiring me for at that moment and i think after the election and um as you know i co-direct um a humanities lab called story lab at duke yes and we focus on narrative and we you know we were deep in our various research groups on fandom and politics and storytelling and story world building which is a course i teach Mm -hmm. um and suddenly I found myself right after the election in the fall of 2016, unable to read stories because I felt like I was thrust into a story world of not, not of my making. So somebody yes. else was directing this world that was created for me that I defied. That the I grand to American story of. at
0: that moment. Yes. yes,
1: yes, precisely. And so it really upset me and actually a week um upset me not just for all the reasons that people who were upset by the election were upset Mm -hmm. but upset me because I felt intellectually I couldn't move on and um and do the things I do um but so a week or two later after election I just put out um a message to our lab a lot of people in the community who who are part of our lab and said what poems have been getting you through this period? Yes. So come come to the lab Friday afternoon and we'll just share our poems. And it turned out to be, I think, out of the three years we've been running this lab, my favorite event. You know, we've had, you know, Pamuk and we've had Ha and we've had, you know, famous authors. But I felt like that was the best event we've ever held because people just came in and read poems and wept, actually. And um, or said, actually, there there have been times when things were worse, which is what uh, a retired uh, staffer, uh, an older African-American woman said to us. She's like, you guys are treating this like the apocalypse, but, you know, things have been <laughs> Get worse. Get real. <laughs> and, and then she um, she did us the incredible honor of reading the poem that she'd been, you know, embracing, which is, of course, um, Langston Hughes, uh, you know, uh, The America That Is Yet to Be, yes. Let America Be America. Yes. And it, it was transformative for us, I felt.
0: There's hope. And so that
1: was really, right. So that was really the kind of genesis of of, you know, this kind of audacity of hope, right? Thinking, and poetry really allowed me to have this space where I wasn't trapped in somebody else's storytelling Mm -hmm. um, that I couldn't get out of. And because poems are, especially lyric poetry, are singular, you know? So you either defy, you either agree or defy, Mm -hmm. um, but you don't, you're not sunk into it, right? Right. And um, the other was that words matter. You know, in, you know, in a moment of um, obfuscation, mm-hmm. um, I feel like the way of countering fake news is not by manufacturing more news or even correcting news because that ends up in some ways constantly, say, talking about Trump, which I avoid. Um, but rather to say, no, words have meaning, words have heft. And so if we look at modes of writing in which every word counts... Then, you know, then that's the way out, and so that's that was very important for me.
0: Uh, and throughout #EveryNightAPoem, we're all reminded of that. I mean, it's 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 brave to to embrace the audacity of hope in the time after the time of the audacity of hope, <laughs> right?
1: Precisely. But
0: maybe maybe essential uh, to, and it's not just Chinese poets, of course, that you that you bring here, right. not by any means, and not only poets for that matter. I know Ursula Le Guin, you you had uh, a couple of months back uh, with her saying, there are two places, home, away. I lack a map that shows me anywhere but those. And you put that up, but I found Mm -hmm. myself wondering what you mean by that, because what is home and away for you? I mean, now I I guess you're in... in, um, in Durham, North Carolina, a lot of the time. Right. Uh, uh, But you've also got a real life in Taiwan and your family's from the mainland of China. What's home and what's away for you, Eileen?
1: Um, Always contextual. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So always moving, a moving target. And perhaps that's why I like her poem that's called GPS, Mm -hmm. um, which is always, um, if you think about how GPSs work, but always a kind of triangulation between where you are at and where you want to go. And um, and that's how I feel um, often. And I think uh, like most people who are fairly on the go from a young age, uh, literature is home. Writing is home. Words are home. And then I return to them and they always ground me in whatever place I happen to be. Um, you mentioned the xingqi Ji Jipong uh. The funny thing is, you know, as you know by the poem, it's about being being young and being older. Yes. And but but I first memorized the poem when I was probably three or four, wow. and knew the poem, you know, all through my life. And every at every point in my life, it has meant something quite different.
0: Um, Do you still have much of it by memory?
1: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! yeah. Could you give us uh, a, <laughs> a
0: few lines of it in in Mandarin? Uh.
1: Um. Gosh, I don't have it in front of me. Um oh, So great.
0: And this takes us back you know, to that in youth, I knew nothing of the taste of sorrow, i like to climb high towers. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that's right. great. Do us a favor, um, do us a favor, Eileen. Uh yes. Literature's home for you. Um mm-hmm. And narrative is your subject. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to bring it back to, to to the literary view of that. But lean toward the political or the national for just a moment. And I know that's not your favorite. You like to get beyond those. <laughs> I, I saw you recently. Sure. You're, you're working on this new Chinese channel for um, the Los Angeles right. Review of Books. And right. if right. people want to get on there, you say, uh, pay less heed to cultural, disciplinary, and national boundaries including right. those contested ones within greater China but for just a moment step back with us and help us mm-hmm. think about the big narratives right now of China right. and the United States and I don't I know there are not <laughs> singular narratives in either of those right. and yet at the point that these two countries meet it often gets reduced to to some fairly flat narrative. How do you see the big narratives of each of these two countries? Maybe maybe looking from the inside. for it. What's the big narrative of China now? What's the big narrative of the U.S.? To your ear, to your eye.
1: Well, you know, actually, um, I don't know if this would offend you know huge groups of people everywhere, but I actually think the China, the big narrative of China, which is not to say the realities of China. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, the big narrative of China and the big narrative of the U.S. are actually quite similar, huh. and which is why I think a lot of people don't dis. Well, now because of trade wars and such. Yeah. But one thing that shocked me, and this was me very much as an Asian American or a mm-hmm. progressive American, I was shocked at how many people liked Trump in China when he first uh, when he was running. And I realized it's because uh, that one of the big narratives of China now is China's exceptionalism. And one of the big narratives yes. of the U.S., frankly, has always been American exceptionalism—that mm-hmm. we are special, we can do what we want, and you know, we have our reasons—and um, a little bit of a, you know, big man in town quality. Right. Sure. And I think that I think those narratives actually align very similarly. Um, the other thing is, uh, as I say, it doesn't match the realities, the lived realities, because there's so many. Different ways of being Chinese, just like there are different ways of being American. Mm-hmm. But in China, even on the level of linguistics, uh, Mandarin and now you know Putonghua mm. or Guoyu, um, uh, as it was known in Taiwan, yes. um, was asserted right as a kind of standard official language. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't actually map onto Beijing vernacular, but it's close to Beijing vernacular mm-hmm. you know, compared to, say, Shanghainese, which is really a different linguistic language. Um, or
0: Cantonese, which I, if, which I grew up learning. Right, or Cantonese. <laughs> yeah, precisely, far yeah. from. So yeah. it
1: is, is, as you know, it's it's like French and Italian. or I mean, it's cognate, yeah. but it's not the same language yes. at all. And, um, But one of the things is I do feel like people who are in the heart of things in China mm-hmm. um, are like Americans in the sense that people speak your language. And I mean language in the sense of narrative and culture and the stories that you know surround your culture. And, and so people have to kind of adopt to you. And I think that people in the center of things in China, people who control in some ways the main narratives, yeah. have a little bit of that same problem which what which here we often call you know white privilege um mm-hmm. you know maybe it's a kind of han privilege that you know that they're used to people coming to the center um as i mentioned which even in my china means the north means beijing
0: right. means taller paler right. all that What right.
1: well, kind of it, it, it's a shi- that actually has shifted right so mm-hmm. a kind of central be say Chiang kai-shek's family comes from zhejiang which is where my family comes from mm-hmm. but that central kind of central plains area and then Beijing, because of you know, uh, which is really um, the Manchu Dynasty, right? But mm-hmm, the, yes. but that that general, you know, which means that people from you know, including Cantonese, including, yeah. uh, you know, the more now more complicated stories about Xinjiang, and Tibet, mm-hmm. and Taiwan, and mm-hmm. uh, never mind Uyghur and all the rest. Right, precise. They're asked to kind of come into the center and tell that story, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 call that their own. And I think that in that sense, uh, there's a kind of orthodoxy and centralization to both narratives yes. that are quite similar. And um, so not as different as people would like to, you know, posit as, as you know, um, sort of freedom versus authoritarianism, which is one version of the American way of looking at China, right? So...
0: Yes, but um, uh, in the U.S., I'm sure we'll have a lot of listeners who will say, Okay, you can talk about orthodoxy, but right now we, we don't have an orthodoxy. Uh, look at what gets labeled. We resist- don't. <laughs> re- well, do Well, I mean, there's a, there's a Trump view of the world, but there's also right. a, quite, quite a vigorous uh, hashtag resistance of many different flavors out <laughs> right, there right, right. now that, that's not prepared to buy into right. that the Trump view of the world as, as orthodoxy, while others are. What about in China? Is there, is there a, a strong—I mean, we've seen recently— some very right. prominent scholars writing very critically about Xi Jinping and in a way right, writing very right. critically about exactly the big narrative you're talking about of Chinese exceptionalism right. and China striding right. out into the world and saying, no, stop that. Is it strong right. that?
1: What is amazing is how brave people are,
0: mm-hmm. to be honest,
1: right? Because as you know, some of these scholars have been, you know, have been arrested or have been silenced. Um, but one thing that has as a student of Chinese history and literature one thing that's always impressed me is that people continue to speak out i mean this is from the you know uh from the grand historian you know writing you know history 2000 years ago i mean that people there are always people who are willing to speak um despite bodily danger but also danger to their families and communities and it continues and and so that's one thing that is uh is an incredible legacy i mean even um so I run this institute in Taiwan, Showa Institute, which is the study of history of Chinese journalists. And yes. um, I'm amazed. I am you know, so many of them get executed along the way. I shouldn't be laughing, but, you know, there's a kind of dark humor to it. And mm-hmm. um, my grandfather himself was also like, you know, minutes away from being executed, um, saved by the fact that the warlord who was about to execute him was marrying again his sixth concubine and uh, didn't want to ruin a bad moment it um, wow. was told yeah. that was told by you know advisors who that that it would you know be bad luck on his mar- wedding mm-hmm. day um, <laughs> but but i mean that 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 you know w- even with those kinds of strictures this is in the 20s in china that people felt like they still had to do their job and that kind of gutsiness i think persists it's even now you know, in the moment of, you know, where it's, uh, you can say, we live in the kind of panopticon um, surveillance everywhere, right? So, um, but it's so amazing that, China that people all. are willing. Yeah, that people are willing to say things.
0: What, what about that, par- those parallel American and Chinese narratives now of exceptionalism? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the American narrative on those lines, we're so used to for so long that we take it as the air we breathe. We're not... Yes, there's, uh, Americans are critical of it, but in the minority, I would say, overall. Uh, now, right. China's adopting that, too. And, of course, for a century and more, China had quite a different view of itself. There was always that deep root of – very deep root of exceptionalism, but it wasn't manifest in the world. Now it is in wealth mm-hmm. and maybe power. Right. How does it work when you have two great powers, these two great powers, and they're each writing mm-hmm. a narrative – of pumped up exceptionalism, is that a recipe for inexorable conflict? Uh,
1: <laughs> um, I don't know. I think um, the sort of coming war with China narrative is yeah. actually one I don't really buy into. Good, tell like us, you explain. Think, yeah, I, I feel that. I feel that uh, real political went out. That I think that would be more advanced. You know, sort of, frankly. Uh, people driving these narratives at the top are perhaps more cynical than they are ideological. Meaning, people want to make money, and so it's really about rich people around the world rather than, say, nationalism, sort of stark nationalism. And so that's what I mean that I don't, I can't see it becoming this. This uh, the conflict where everybody you know loses because in some ways there's still going to be oligarchy, both here and there who want to preserve their wealth and so you know and power and so that I think there would be compromises, but does that result in a lot of suffering along the lines for people aside from those small groups at the top? Yes, I think so. I think there could be a lot of damage done. Right. Um, whether it be in form of war or poverty or environmental harm or, you know, and, and so that, so that's, so I think there is a conflict, but I think the people at the very top are not going to suffer from that conflict, neither here nor there.
0: But um, nationalism and boundaries, whatever you think right. of them, they can be pumped up in a hurry from your hashtag every night, a poem, you've got Alberto Rios and his is <laughs> the border is a rusted hinge right. that does not bend the border is the blood clot in the river's vein. But we all know how those borders can be um, hardened. I'm so
1: abashed <laughs> that, you, that you read my hashtag so carefully. So. You've
0: been giving me comfort, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I saw when you were, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, mm-hmm. were mourning the passing of the great modernist Hong Kong writer, Liu Yichang. Uh, yes. And his... A couple of his short stories set the stage for Wong Kar Wai's fabulous movie In the Mood for Love. Right. uh, Which is just one of my all-time favorites and the score for that I just love. And Anthony Bourdain, uh, when he was in Hong Kong for his, it was one of his, was it his last? One of his very, very late. One of his very
1: last, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, And of course, he was there and Wong Kar Wai was for him a framing aesthetic for Hong Kong in a very powerful way. Uh, I watched him crossing the Hong Kong Harbor on the Star Ferry, which back in the day I'd done, you know, a million times. That used to be one of the beautiful choke points for the world, where if you stood there long enough, you'd see everyone come through. Uh, Talk about uh, Liu Yichang and, and and that view of the world for so many decades out of this talk about a cosmopolitan setting of Hong Kong uh, right setting a tone so um,
1: you know uh, well I'm also similarly obsessed with Wong Kar as you probably yeah, noticed yes um, and the film and, and part of it is because uh, that vision of women in women and men in Hong Kong living kind of in their own bubble yeah. in Shanghai you know in some way a kind of Shanghainese Hong Kong yes. was basically my my family my actually mm-hmm. my my grandmother my paternal grandmother was from hong kong uh, from shanghai and mm-hmm. um but in taipei they they all wear their chionsam they played their mahjong yes they you know they they very much kept within themselves they spoke Shanghainese. Mm-hmm. and so so part of it is just nostalgia for me that this is how i as remember grown-ups as you know yeah. um from my you know sort of uh ground's eye view as a toddler and. Um, but the other is, uh, you know, that this is a kind of story, it, it is a bourgeois story, right? Or mm-hmm. elite story of yeah. China, mm-hmm. but it doesn't get told as much. And right now I'm writing about my family and it's actually very difficult because in some ways it doesn't fit into the grand narratives. The, you know, one grand narrative, of course, is the revolutionary narrative, yes. um, you know, Premier C's narrative, mm-hmm. Um China becoming stronger and stronger, or maybe a more conservative narrative of the history of China, you know, going back thousands and people are always wanting to add another millennial <laughs> millennium to that thousand. Um, mm. But uh, there's another, which is um, like many members, of my family um, studied in France, uh, went to St. John's in Shanghai um, people who were um, very much on the front lines, on the border of what it meant to think of oneself as a citizen in global modernity mm-hmm. that you're part of this you know changing world of that now has you know tram cars and telephones and films yes. and um, literature from all over the world that you're reading you can be a francophile sitting in a cafe in 1920 Shanghai you know and actually my parent uh, my grandparents met in a cafe in Paris in Shanghai I mean what am i saying uh, my pair my grandparents met in Paris, um, in a cafe.
0: You can't get more as to, cosmopolitan. Right. That's the high end and, than that.
1: And and the reason is because my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was had a, a very came from a very traditional landowning family from mm-hmm. um, from Jiangxi, and her father, who was uh, traditionally was a traditional official, um, actually a Confucian official, wanted to sent um, his children. Uh, his eldest son to Edinburgh to study philosophy mm-hmm. and to the Sorbonne to study and sent my grandmother to the Sorbonne to study literature. So even for someone in the 1910s, yes. you know, I've always tried to understand, like, what is the mentality of this, you know, older Confucian gentleman who had the means the to do it?
0: They were smelling right, the future. They were smelling the right, global world. Precisely. And, and they responding. were sending them
1: to study engineering, right? So R-
0: they, right. He Be- wanted them
1: to, right? So, Beyond. And, um, and maybe… Yeah, and of course that's a luxury, and that's you know of, of yeah. a particular you know property class. But but I feel like that is a story that also is true for a lot of people, and is a reality. And like Liu Yichang, who you know, um, uh, you know his hundred years on this earth. Yes, um, this is the Hong that Kong story. writer, and and right, and, 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 and with his view is one that's view, not told.
0: N- yes, and and his view of the past. I mean, you you quote him from a Drunkard. Do you, Chom? Right. Uh, saying all right. memories are sodden. I mean, right. there's something, yes, uh, negative and dismissive of memory there, or in in part at least. But there's also something very hopeful, right. saying lighten up, let look, you know, in a way, look forward, <laughs> which is just fantastic. Right. You you recently had um, just a little fragment of a poem and a marvelous mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> w- uh, a little water painting from Oh gosh, now I'm really embarrassed. <laughs> oh, this is uh, so. summer cherries. And yes. you had the smallest fragment of it, and I have to admit, I, I couldn't translate it. I just went to Google Translate, and it was such so fragmentary. Maybe you tell us about it. It Says streamer is easy to throw people, red cherry, green bananas. I felt like Bill Murray quoting or reading that. <laughs> what? What? I mean, we get the gist of the fresh gist of it, but tell us.
1: I'm I'm really glad that I have not been replaced by Google Translate.
0: <laughs> you um, have not that not,
1: right. I didn't <laughs> that uh you know that that's kind of interesting to know that that poem kind of defied translate i was going to return to it and and provide the translation i just forgot about it yeah. but um it's um it's actually very simple it's a but it, it again like xin qi it's um a poem by um uh jiang jie which who's actually from about the same period and also in some ways in exile. He wrote many poems. Um, I I post another one of his poems. I don't know if you remember it, but it says, uh, listening to rain. Um, So when he was a young man, he listened to rain in a kind of uh, brothel, basically, Mm. with uh, red candles flickering. In middle age, he listened to rain on a passenger ship deep in the deep in the middle of the river, far away from home. And in old age, now he listens to rain in the monasteries, um, you know, listening to the rain dropped uh, drops, um, hitting the roof thatch roof till uh, daylight. So, so you know, he was already always, you mentioned home in a way. So this mm-hmm. is someone who, especially of that period, maybe that's why I like poets of that period, uh, you know, with the decline of the Northern Song dynasty and, really, the beginning of the, uh, in the Southern Song, and then the Yuan dynasty, of course, the Mongols, Mongols coming in, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them were very displaced, right? They were yes. elites who were displaced. And even if they found positions, they were not really doing what they thought they would be doing. And um, they were often posted far away from home. And um, so the poem itself that you just mentioned, the fragment, is really just to put it the, so should I read in Chinese? But Jiao. Yes, and the line is a almost a kind of flirtation, in, it very much in keeping with the genre. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a song and dance thing. And so it says, uh, you know, basically the passing of time often leaves one behind. So now the cherries are reddening and the, papa- the banana leaves are greening. Yeah. So it seems very simple. But, but what I like about poetry is what is unsaid, what is between the lines. Mm-hmm. And um, he titled this poem, even though the main title of the poem is just the metric form. So it would be like green sl- to the tune of "Green Sleeves" mm-hmm. kind of equivalent, oh, wow. you know? Yes, okay. um, yeah. So, but uh, this is what this is like. So they they basically just told you like how you sh- you should sing it. Mm-hmm. But he actually had a subtitle that said um, uh, "Written on a boat crossing the Wu River." and if you knew anything about his biography and you knew anything about that particular moment in history, and I think um the study of Chinese poetry is really the opposite of uh of uh new criticism uh mm-hmm. of the t s Eliot camp um really it is really very much about um thinking of the whole person so yes. thinking of the biography, thinking of the history, mm-hmm. thinking of the moment in time, mm-hmm. you would know that Ji is writing this in In exile, I mean, that he's traveling. But what he's noting is the banana leaves and the cherries and the passing of time.
0: The fresh presence too.
1: Right, right. So that's kind of what I love about um, this period of poetry. Um, And and maybe all poetry, maybe all the poems I choose are like this, that they, they touch upon the intensely personal, intensely lyrical in a time of national
0: crisis. It makes translation so interesting. I've often sat or stood next to Chinese friends, asked right. them to translate something, and watched as they turned inward for such a deep journey to come back out with a full <laughs> translation, not just a word-by-word. Word, right. The translation right. that gives the context of exile or or a moment of national crisis that runs through. Of course, I suppose that's right. true in any language. Sometimes there's not time for that a little fun, and then I hope you'll read a poem with me. But a little fun. Tell us about the time going back to our uh, our subtitling right. days and our in our dubbing days of Chinese uh, film oh, or gosh. Western film. There's a story of you, um, and somehow the classic uh, film with Marilyn Monroe and Yves Montan was turned into your lap. The film oh. is Let's Make Love, and you had to you had to translate this into Chinese in a single afternoon, and it was multilingual. Tell us that story.
1: Oh gosh, I, that was a really kind of uh, silly phase of my life i was right after college and um, um i was uh, back in taiwan for a few months and um, so i took on um, this translation agency and they would just toss things at me and this was in the age of vhs and yeah. and they would just basically say we're getting this out of course this film is made in nineteen sixties, so what was the hurry really but yeah. they they were like we're releasing this film so Get us the, let's go you know, get us the, let's go and um but it's got french I, and italian
0: and german and spanish i know and pepper- i just
1: i was just kind of you know and i i thought well hey i'm kind of multilingual i'm, <laughs> I'm queen of first year languages i've taken yeah. a lot of languages yeah. just don't know any of them well but um and
0: i'm uh, the king of that just, domain by the way it's on the other side i know well so
1: so that's why we're that's why <laughs> well, we like here we are but like uh so and uh, it was just uh, making up as 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 I went in some ways, yeah, but I, I think yeah. that was part of the fun. And as you know, subtitle, subtitling is all about actually fitting um, the words on the right number of seconds. Yes. I mean, so yeah. so it's also just a kind of improvisational. We used to write get, the script to you know, fit right?
0: the lips. <laughs>
1: precisely, precisely. So
0: you know, so you know, on the so film. it's
1: this moment of just panic and just writing things to make sure and um and usually i would be very charmed by sort of that kind of use tongue, um but flair but i was just like no no stop speaking multiple languages i'm going crazy and um but then yeah so that's the kind of thing i often did and they were often high wire acts and i got paid very little (laughs) so i also think it's fun yeah fair
0: enough, um, fair enough then fair enough this has been so great i've enjoyed it just enormously i wonder if we could close oh, thank you um maybe reading a poem together Uh um, oh. and if you need to take a moment to get this and we'll, we'll cut this mm-hmm. out later but uh, it's margaret atwood's late august do you have access to that in your home office there can you pull that up eileen uh
1: yes i, I yeah i think i can
0: yeah Tell me when you've got it, yes. and then I'll I'll plunge in. And if you don't mind, and I'll say this again, but we'll, if you don't mind just reading alternate stanzas with me, I'll I'll open and you'll then close. Okay. Are you good? Do you have it in sure. front of you?
1: Yeah. Yes, I have it in front of me.
0: Good. On your, again, hashtag every night a poem, one of my faves on Twitter, you've got, <laughs> and it's great for this season we're in, uh, a poem by Margaret Atwood. It's late August. I wonder if we can read it. If, if we just dive in, I'll start, and let's do alternate stanzas. Does it sound all right? Sure, sure. Let's do it. Here it is. Margaret Atwood, late August. This is the plum season, the nights blue and distended, the moon hazed. This is the season of peaches.
1: With their lush lobed bulbs that glow in the dusk, apples that drop and rot sweetly, their brown skins veined as
0: glands. No more the shrill voices that cried, Need, Need, from the cold pond, bladed and urgent as new grass.
1: Now it is the crickets that say, Ripe, ripe, slurred in the darkness, while the
0: plums, Dripping on the lawn outside our window, burst with a sound like thick syrup, muffled and slow. The air is
1: still warm, flesh moves over flesh, there is no
0: hurry. And that takes us to a special, <laughs> special place. Eileen, so, uh, it's just been fantastic talking with you. I can oh, you how so much I've enjoyed it. Eileen Chenyin Chow at Duke and uh, also at the uh, Cheng She Institute of Chinese Journalism at Shishin University in Taipei in Taiwan. Let's talk again. It's just been wonderful. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.